There's a handout going around. That's the topic schedule that we'll be going through in this class, as well as the reading schedule. If you don't have this book, strongly, highly recommend it. All you have to do is read five to ten pages a week, and you can get some things into your mind before you come here that will help you quite a bit. And if you took this with me five years ago when I did it, there's going to be new information. Lord willing, I'm always reading and studying, trying to get new arguments from the scriptures, of course, and other theologians as I read, not just MacArthur and Mayhew, but the men going through, which you might be able to see in the background there, these books, one of which is Reformed Systematic Theology by Beakey and Smalley. So I'm always trying to stay up on what's coming out. Not new theology, of course, but new ways to say the same thing to a new generation, still being faithful to the Word. So this handout will guide you. If you want to grab one of these, do so in the bookstore. I think we have them at a discount there. A systematic summary of biblical truth called Biblical Doctrine here, MacArthur and Mayhew. This is pretty much the official Master Seminary doctrinal statement, expanded greatly to about a thousand pages. And I highly recommend it. It's a good resource to have. A book like this, even if you don't read through it in this class, which I highly recommend, it's good to have on the shelf, though. Somebody asked about the different views on tongues. You can just open right up. It's actually two sections in this book on that issue, or prophecy, or who is God, or is God a spirit, or is he in that tree right there, and things like that. You can just flip right to it, or you have a Bible verse, and you want to see if it's explained in here to some extent. You can go in the back in the index. That's how I use it a lot. I'm preaching on Romans 9, 1 through 5. Does this book talk about that? Then I can open to that page. So today we're covering two big questions. This is just introduction to systematic theology. We're covering two big questions. What is systematic theology? Why study systematic theology? If you don't answer these questions and jump right in, you could really make some mistakes. So let me pray and then we'll get started with the answers to those questions. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is so precious to us. As Christians, we love your word. Without it, we would be lost. Without it, we would be walking around in the darkness. And we're thankful that you've put the gospel message there and you've put this ongoing godliness instructions for holiness, instructions for equipping us for daily life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we study theology this semester, that you would give us insight that you would teach us things we had not seen before, and that this would help us to live out the truth, to apply what we know, to live godly lives for you. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. What is theology? Why study systematic theology? So at a real basic level, let's just look at the word theology. Theology comes from two words in Greek, theos, or as some Americans say, theos. That's a Texan pronunciation, right, Frank? Theos, or New England pronunciation. That means God, logos. Logos means word, or logic, or concept, or idea. Kind of a a big cloud of meanings for logos, but generally we translate it as word. So you put that together, a word concerning God, or Logical study, the logic of God, the logical study. Not God's logic, but what we can learn from Scripture logically and orderly to know God. So what is theology really about? It's about knowing God, knowing Him better. When somebody says, I don't need that theology, 
They're basically saying, I don't, I don't need to know God. If a Christian ever says to you, and we'll come to some of these objections, I don't need to study theology. I already know God as Savior. That's like me telling my wife, I married you, but the last 25 years, I don't really need to get to know you any better than I did that first day. We're done. We're married now, so I don't have to learn anything about you. That's not really a great relationship, is it? And a Christian should desire to learn more about God. A Christian should want to, in their heart, learn more about God. And that's really all theology is. It does have a practical purpose that we'll come to. But in, in the beginning here, we're just saying theology is the study of God. And you could add the study of God and his relationship to his creation, specifically mankind. So where is that found? Well, here's Jesus, John 17, 3. He's praying and he says, This is eternal life that they, talking about his disciples, may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yes, salvation comes through faith. Yes, you must repent to be saved. But ultimately, when we boil it down, salvation, eternal life, is about knowing God. Knowing who he is. Knowing how we come to him. Knowing him through his son. Knowing him because we have the spirit who makes him known to us in our hearts. And Jesus says, this is the only true God. The Father is the only true God. We must know him to have eternal life. Here's Old Testament Jeremiah. Thus says Yahweh, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. This is God speaking to Israel. Stop boasting in how much you know people. Stop boasting in how much your strength is, how much wealth you have. But here, here's what it boils down to. Do you understand and know God? That I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. That's a lot of theology packed right in there. I am Yahweh. What does that name mean? That's a theological question. What is loving kindness? That's a theological concept, an attribute of God. Justice, the same. Righteousness, again, it's an attribute. It's a perfection of God. Justice is, righteousness is, loving kindness is. And what does it mean that he delights? Can a God delight? Those are all questions about theology proper, the study of God. So we're just asking, what is systematic theology? At the heart, it is knowing God. And not just knowing about God. Everyone knows about God. In fact, everyone, even the Gentile who's never read the Bible, knows that there is a God and that they should worship him. And that they have some idea of his divine attributes. So they know about God and they know something about him that should cause them to worship him. They don't, of course. That's where Romans 1 goes with mankind's sinfulness. But the believer has no excuse. You've got a new heart. You've got a spirit, God's spirit inside you. You've been cleansed. Now, what are you going to do? Just sit back on the couch and say, I've got my free ticket. Free ticket to heaven. Going back to my old life. You need to be learning and growing. What do you think heaven's going to be like? You think it's going to be sitting around on the cloud saying, everybody look at my ticket that I got back on earth. I got a ticket into heaven. You're going to be learning and growing and becoming closer and closer with God for eternity and serving him on the new earth. Let's look at some biblical words. Sometimes people maybe get a little too fundamentalist and say, this theology stuff's not found in the Bible. Show me where the word theology is in the Bible. 
Well, the word theology is an English word. It comes from Greek words. But is there a biblical word that matches this? And there are really two. We could expand this. There are some phrases that also work. But here's two Greek words. First, didache. Didache means the activity of teaching. Teaching, instruction, or the content. So you can, you can be teaching or you can receive the teaching. And it's the second one that is the concept for theology. Systematic theology is the content of the teaching. So we're going to see that come up in the Bible a lot in the New Testament. It's the content. It's the, the knowledge that is being taught, the body of knowledge. Also, didaskalia. You can see very similar there. It comes from the root having to do with teaching. Didaskalia, it can either be the act of teaching or instructing or that which is taught. That's what we're doing here. We're not talking about number one in these, which is how you teach. That was my workshop a couple of weeks ago that I did. This is what is taught. The teaching, the theology, the doctrine of Scripture. And sometimes it is translated as doctrine in many translations, as we'll see. But systematic theology, that way of describing the teaching, is is rather new. It didn't come around really until the Middle Ages and later. But just like the word Trinity isn't found in one verse, you don't see the exact word Trinity as we say it in English. What do you see? The concept, the idea, the teaching on the Trinity. Which, by the way, if somebody was to ask you, what is the Trinity or who is the Trinity? That's a theological question. And so you're already getting into the realm of theology when you're answering that question. Let's look at where these words come up. Didache comes up in Romans 6.17. Paul says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern, Didache, of teaching, that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. You, you were a slave of sin. And then you came to Christ. And guess what the very first teaching that you heard was? As you're coming to Christ, the gospel. That's a teaching. That's a doctrine. How a person is saved. Soteriology. Repent and believe in Christ. Is not just a command, but it's also a theological statement. Now, he describes this as a pattern. It's, it's something that's being taught amongst the apostles. that comes from Jesus. It's a group of teachings, a group of doctrines. In 2 Timothy 2, 13, Paul uses a phrase here. It doesn't have the word didache, but it has the, the idea of words that are sound. These are solid words, and they're a standard. Just like he said, pattern in Romans 6. You need, Timothy, to hold to the standard of sound words. There's a body of knowledge that's been taught by Christ, that's been taught in the Scriptures. Christ often pointed back to the Old Testament. Paul does the same. But this knowledge is now passed to the disciples, and they're going to go out and teach the church. And it's a standard. It's a rule by which we can measure what is true and what is false. Because if it's unsound words, that means there's, there's no depth to it. It's, it's weak. It's false. You can't stand on something that's unsound. You'll fall through. The standard of sound words, though, Timothy, you need to focus on and do so because you've heard that from me, and Paul's been appointed by Christ to teach, and in faith and love, which are in Jesus Christ. So a lot of American Christians love the idea of faith. They love the idea of love. What about sound words? What about theology? I'll give you some stats on where we're at as a country in a moment. Here's a great verse. Didaskalia. Now this tells us why God gave the office gifts to the church. Ephesians 4.11. He himself gave some as apostles. Okay, those have come and gone. Some as prophets. Those have come and gone. Some as evangelists. Those are folks who go out and preach the word to unbelievers. 
some as pastors and teachers. These are offices in the church. Pastor being a shepherd and elder and teacher being a Bible teacher. Pastors and teachers are very closely linked because pastors should be able to teach. Okay, why did Christ give those gifts to the church? To entertain? To look snazzy? To teach you prosperity principles? No, for the equipping of the saints. This is an equipping class. Here's where we get the name for that. The equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? Not the popes. The believers. Believers are saints. They're holy ones. Saints just means holy ones. We don't have to bring in all the Roman Catholic baggage. The word saint just means holy ones. It's, saint is Latin for holy ones. Hagios, the holy ones. For the work of service. So the pastors and teachers in the church are equipping the believers to do the work of ministry. To do the work of ministry. So that the shepherds aren't doing all of the work of ministry. They're doing a lot of the teaching work, of course, and the preaching. But all the service ministries and a lot of the evangelistic ministries are something that you're trained up for and then sent out to do. And also ministry here in the church, whether it's music, serving one another, caring for one another, praying for one another, so on. What does that do? That builds up the body of Christ. How long do we do that? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. All of us. That's a long time, huh? We've got some work to do. And of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Who can say that they're all the way there? Do you have a full knowledge of the Son of God? And you're mature. The word mature in Greek means perfect, complete. Not necessarily talking about sin here, but just in your knowledge of who Christ is, who God is. We never reach that, really. I mean, until we go to be with Christ, I think that's the end point he's talking about here. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Not according to your standard of the guy next to you or the pastor who went to seminary. But what's the measure? The measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Christ is your standard. So that we will no longer be children. A lot of people, when they come to faith immediately, they're like little children. We all are in some sense, right? What, are, what do children do? They believe everything. You can tell them whatever you want. You can tell my three-year-old whatever she wants. And she's going to believe it for a little while at least. We're babies when we come to faith. And what happens to a baby? They're tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's didascalia, but it's used to speak of bad teaching. Every wind of doctrine. Everything that comes along. And that's by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Ultimately, it comes from Satan. Have you ever met believers? Maybe you were one of them. Maybe you still are. Who every time you hear some new doctrine, that's, that's the big thing. I, I just love... I've, you guys, I've never heard of this doctrine. I suddenly discovered it. I found it down at Barnes & Noble. I picked up this book. It's by Bart Ehrman. He said, Jesus became God. That's amazing. I've never heard that. My pastor kept that from me. I think I'm going to read this book and believe it. Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, all kinds of doctrines, evolution. Doctrines are all around in the world. Everybody believes something. And if you don't grow in your knowledge of theology, you're just going to be thrown back and forth. I heard this. This church said that, but the next church said something different. Who's right? Who's wrong? I picked up this book. Somebody gave me Jesus Calling for Christmas. Is that something I should read? It has Jesus' name on it. Maybe I should read it. I had this Bible. It has some extra books in it that my Catholic friend gave. Maybe I should read those extra books. I mean, we're all Christians, right? Every wind of doctrine just being thrown around. And, and for some people, this can be very, make them anxious. They can have great anguish, distress. They don't know what to believe. And Paul says, look, God has given you pastors and teachers, specifically in the church, 
to help you grow so that you're not thrown around. Learn doctrine, in other words, from your church leaders, from trusted men, and grow so you're not thrown around. Ultimately, we learn it from the Bible, but it helps. God has given us shepherds to teach us. Romans 15.4, didascalia is called instruction. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. He's talking about the Old Testament. Can the Old Testament teach us anything? We're not under the Old Covenant. Right. But Paul says it's still there for our instruction, for our teaching, for our doctrine, for our theology, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, the Bible of Paul's day was the Old Testament. That was it. Here you go. Here's your systematic theology. Or you get your systematic theology from there. First Timothy 4, 6, in pointing out these things to the brothers, he's challenging Timothy to teach and do the right things and correct people who aren't doing that. He says, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being nursed on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Sound doctrine. Sometimes people say, you know, you guys are too doctrinal. You guys are too doctrinal. I don't want to go back to that church. It's too doctrinal. Paul says we ought to care about sound doctrine and be teaching it a lot. It comes out in every sermon. You don't realize it, and we'll look at some examples but throughout this course, but the text itself points usually to a doctrine or more, and I try to work those into my preaching and classes here. There's just always doctrine coming out. There's doctrine coming out in counseling. There's doctrine coming out in all kinds of things that we do here. So doctrine is important. We get instruction from the Bible And we need to know what that instruction is, what that teaching is. What does the Bible say about certain things? That is doctrine. Also, didascalia, Titus 1.9. Elders are supposed to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. I didn't even underline that one. The teaching. That's probably didache there. And then so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, didascalia, and reprove those who contradict. So the leader doesn't just have to know true doctrine from Scripture, But he's got to know the false doctrine that is counter to Scripture, that is opposite from Scripture, so that he can correct people who come into the church and teach wrongly. If if you're in a church ever where your leaders don't know doctrine or don't know very much doctrine, you should consider that. If you end up somewhere in a church someday and you have a, a, a question that's pretty basic theological question and somebody says, I'm not really well read on that, the pastor says, I'm not quite sure you better either ask him some more questions and meet with him or find yourself a new church, particularly if it is one of the major doctrines of Scripture. In all things, Titus 2.7, show yourself to be a model of good works with purity and doctrine dignified. And he goes on to tell Titus how he should live as a Christian man. You need to have purity and doctrine. Have the right doctrine, the pure doctrine, the right, correct, biblical, orthodox doctrine. So let's look at some Men's definitions. Why do we care about men's definitions? Well, as we're going to see, theology is taking texts of the Bible, putting them together, and now stating that truth. And so what these men have done is they've said, okay, what is theology? And they've tried to summarize it in a sentence. James Garrett wrote a theology book. He said, it's the ordered exposition of Christian doctrines. So see if you can see some common terms used by these definitions. Intellectual or rational discourse about God, and things divine. Bruce Demarest and Gordon Lewis, the topical and logical study of God's revealed nature and purpose. So you're seeing words like order, rational, topical, logical, same as rational. 
Charles Hodge, I like this definition, the, the exhibition of the facts of Scripture. Exhibition is to gather Scripture together and show people what it means into their proper order and relation. Again, there's order there, there's structure with the principles or general truths involved in the facts themselves, which pervade and harmonize the whole. So the showing forth of the facts of Scripture in an orderly way. We see this definition or those words used over and over here. Here's Herman Bavink. A theologian's sole responsibility is to think God's thoughts after him. I really like that. We are to think God's thoughts after him. That's biblical. And to reproduce the unity that is objectively present, not subjectively, not what you think. I think it means this. No, what does it actually mean? What's the objective truth here? Present in the thoughts of God and has been recorded for the eye of faith in Scripture. So there is meaning in the text. There is meaning in the Bible. We are to faithfully look at that, determine what it is, put it together, organize it, and that makes up our theology. Getting a little more recent, John Murray taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. He said, The task of systematic theology is to set forth in orderly and coherent manner the truth respecting God and his relations to man and the world. You see that word order comes up a lot, doesn't it? Order, logical, topical. We've got to logically put these things together. What, is it, what does it mean? It means you, you take the verses that are similar, that talk about the same subject, and you, you compile them. So, for example, when John Piper wrote this big, huge book we have in our bookstore called Providence. Anybody seen that? It's a big red book, about a thousand pages. Anybody read that? No? Oh, we got one. We got one brave soul. It's a great book. Here's how he did it. He took all the verses in the Bible. He actually had his research staff put together a document with all of hundreds of verses in the Bible that talk about providence. And then he sorted them and ordered them into different, slightly different topics. And that became the chapters in his book, which he then expounded on. That's doing theology. Here's Steve Lawson. It's, in its very broadest sense, theology addresses any issue of life confronting man. Beginning with the most basic issues of life, namely, who is God and what is man? It is the orderly arrangement of verses from all portions of Scripture that reveals the mind of God on any subject. You remember a while back, somebody was asked, what is a woman? And they couldn't answer. They, they refused to answer for political correctness, of course. But you can see that we can't, just, we can't say, well, science will tell us. Science will tell us. Guess what science is doing now? Just lying, right? A lot of people get sex changes, and there you go. It's no longer a woman. It's a man. Well, the Bible says what a man is. Who man is. That's important. It's God's standard that matters to the believer. What is systematic theology? Here's Beaky and Smalley. Great book. We have this in the bookstore. If you don't have a copy, it's a little more in-depth than, than the book I'm recommending for this class. So the first volume is about that big. And there's going to be four volumes eventually. But I like their definition a lot here. They say, what does the whole Bible teach about a given topic and its relation to other topics? Systematic theology is an organized and comprehensive presentation of the whole counsel of God. Paul said he taught the whole counsel of God to the people he ministered to. Well, let's take the whole counsel of God and let's, let's organize it and relate it to the other topics in the Bible and teach on it. That's what Paul did. Now let's compare that. So, so back to systematic theology. Grudem's is similar to this, the top of this. I used to have it in my slides, but I like this one better. Grudem's is what does the Bible, what does the whole Bible say about topics today that come up or something like that. I like that definition. It's real simple. 
as far as Grudem's whole book, I think it's, it's easier to read in some ways. It's more college level. This is more maybe seminary level. But uh, he goes off track on some things. And the newest edition goes even more off track on some things. So used to, I could recommend the second edition with some caveats on the charismatic gifts. Now he's messing with the Trinity too much, and, and I can't recommend it. So there are other types of theology. So what is systematic theology? It's an orderly, what, study of what the whole Bible says on a certain topic. What's the topic? Ecclesiology. The church, right? We're going to come to ecclesiology. The church. What does the Bible say about the church? Does the Bible tell us anything about church? Like who's to lead the church? What kind of qualifications leaders should have? What's to be done in church service? Are we just free to do whatever we want? However we feel. Well, the Bible has some instructions. Okay, we don't need ecclesiology. We just need the Bible. Okay, let's see. I opened the Deuteronomy. All right, let's do church. It's not going to work, is it? Why? The temple. Wait, we don't have that. Okay, let's flip to another passage. All I, I got the Bible. That's all I need here. That is all you need, but you need to think orderly through it and organize it and think logically about it. Are you going to get off track? Okay, what's another one? Somebody said sin. What about sin? What does the Bible teach about sin? Do we take the world's view today of sin? Because that's changed, right? Frank was talking about a psychology book. What, is it an article or a book? Whatever happened to the, the word sin? Even psychologists are wondering, what happened to the change of definition when it comes to sin? Because it changes, it seems like, every generation now. What's another one? Creation. There's a lot of debate out there on creation, right? What else? Marriage. Yeah, what does the Bible say about that? So we're going to take all the verses in the Bible, and thankfully this has been done for us, so we don't have to, but you could do it on your own. Take all the verses in the Bible, study them, and then try to summarize it with statements. Marriage is blank. There are other types of theology that people study that I studied in seminary. Exegetical theology. And sometimes this is just called exegesis. Exegesis. This is deriving the author's meaning of a biblical text. And it's based on three things. Sound hermeneutical principles, biblical languages, and biblical background. So you take a passage. I'm going to take a passage today. I've interpreted it based on sound hermeneutical principles. I've looked at it in the original language, and I've considered the background. Who's Paul writing to? What's going on in the Roman church, as far as we can tell? What is Rome? Where is Rome? What kind of theology are the Romans having in their pagan theology? So on, that's biblical background. So that's dealing with a passage or a verse, trying to get the meaning, the, the author's meaning, God's inspired meaning. When Paul wrote that text, what is it? That's exegesis. Then there's biblical theology. So you take passages that you've studied and you link them up together and you see how that progresses throughout a book, throughout an author, throughout a testament. That's called biblical theology. How a particular doctrine is developed in scripture. And the key word is progressive, progressively over time. Not not progressive like we use it today, meaning liberal. But how does this thing grow? The doctrine of sin starts in Genesis 3. The Bible has a lot more to say about sin than just Genesis 3 in the fall. That's where it starts. But if you were to trace it all the way through the Bible and see how it's developed, that's called biblical theology. Now, sometimes we get a little confused because we say, we want to study biblical doctrine. We want to study theology that is biblical. That's different than the discipline called biblical theology. Biblical theology was developed much more recent as far as the terminology of what it is. It's been done since, of course, biblical times. Paul did it. Jesus did it. You see Stephen doing it before he's about to be stoned. He goes back to the Old Testament. He traces the history of Israel 
how they've always been hard-hearted. That's a type of biblical theology. But systematic theology was taken and some other terms were taken, so they chose to use the word biblical theology. How a theology develops, how a doctrine develops throughout the Bible. Then there's historical theology, how doctrine has developed and been discussed throughout church history. What have other people said about this? Uh, I once was trying to encourage a a brother in Christ in a a previous church before I went to seminary. I said, you should really read some of the older books. Because this guy, he he loved the newer writers, you know, John MacArthur, Archie Sproul. I said, you should now dip into some of the older stuff. The Puritans are great. And he said, you know, why should we read the Puritans? What do they have to give us? And I said, well, they have a lot of good teaching. And he said, why can't we just read the Bible? And I said, but you read more than the Bible, right? You read Sproul, you read MacArthur. Oh, yeah, they're great. Well, then let's go back a little further and read some older guys and see what they thought. Because you're already reading historical theology, even if these guys are still alive, right? The book's been written. That's history. You're reading it. So what do they think about theology? That's kind of chronological snobbery, C.S. Lewis said, just to read the modern stuff and not read anything past our lifetime are usually in the last decade, right? Today, it's really common with social media to be all into the newest theological works and not really go back and read some of the older ones. Much more likely somebody to read a book about the Puritans than actually read the Puritans or Jonathan Edwards or Calvin or Augustine. And then we have, lastly, practical theology. This is the organization of Scripture with an emphasis on the personal application of doctrinal truth in the lives of the church and individual Christians. So practical theology is now, given that you've done those other things, now we can apply it in the various ways that we need to apply it in the church and in our lives. But we can't skip to this point. A lot of churches will say it's, it's about practicing. It's about doing what you already know, not learning more. That's kind of a church I once went to said, it's not so much what you know, but what you're doing with it. What little bit you do know, you're not even applying it yet. So don't learn anything else was kind of the, the idea. And guess what? The theology was very thin, right? A mile wide and an inch thick. This can uh, be worked out in various ways that are very important for us. Pastoral theology. What does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to preach? What does it mean to shepherd? Biblical counseling. Apologetics. That's defending the faith with theological ideas from the Bible. Theology from the Bible. Polemics is attacking other religions based on theological arguments from the Bible. When Paul tells the Galatians, that's another gospel. He's doing a type of polemic there. Ethics, what is right and what is wrong? Is is abortion right? Is birth control right? Is IVF right? According to scripture, all of these discussions that we'll be going through as men in the God, marriage, and family book. Abortion, marriage, euthanasia, so many topics today deal with ethics. Worship theology, how should we worship? Homiletics, how should the word be preached? Evangelism theology, how should we evangelize? Should we do the sinner's prayer? Should we do the four principles? What is that called? The four laws? There's all kinds of evangelism theology out there, some of which is not good. Christian education, this is a type of Christian education right now. How should we do it? Should we even do it? Some churches believe you shouldn't even have a class like this. Some churches believe that women shouldn't be taught the Bible. That the husbands are taught and they're supposed to go home and teach their wives. And women's Bible study shouldn't be allowed in churches. And we could just go on with types of practical theology. So how does it all fit together? 
I, I got this from Abner Chow, but it's a um, pretty common way to do this. We see this pyramid here, and it's not that one is more important than the other. It's how you build this thing up. Because too many churches jump straight to practical. It only matters if you can do it right now. So don't worry about all that other stuff. You don't need to study languages. You don't need to study. Well, somebody in your church better know these things, right? First, you have biblical languages, biblical background, and hermeneutics. Those are the three that allow you to do exegesis. And exegesis is what you get in preaching, what you get in Bible studies, what you sometimes do yourself as you're really digging into the text. Now, you might say, well... I don't even know all that stuff. I don't really want to learn that. I don't want to teach that Greek class that you're teaching starting this week, Pastor Michael. That's a lot of work. That's fine. We all rely on other people at some point, right? Guess where we learn Greek from? Professors and books that have been written. Where'd they learn it? From people that came before them and before them all the way back to the original Greeks. Biblical background. There's guys that go out and do all the research and archaeological digs and write up the books. I don't have time to do that. Now, I'm going to dig into a little more because that's what I get paid to do. Praise the Lord. I love to do that. And I need to do that for exegesis of the text. But you can just pick up a, a commentary sometimes, especially with biblical backgrounds. You're not going to travel to Israel and start surveying the sites and getting all your, your data organized. Hermeneutics, Frank just did a class on that. It's online. You can listen to that if you weren't here. That's just learning how to exercise good principles of interpretation, sound principles of interpreting the text. Of all these things on the bottom, the hermeneutics you can do. Anybody can do and should do. Biblical background, we all rely on what other people have written. Biblical languages, you can learn it yourself or rely upon what others have said and done and check their work. So then we get exegesis. On top of that, we get the biblical theology, how these doctrines progress throughout Scripture. Then systematic theology, which is what does the whole Bible say? Now we've done exegesis, we can start getting those texts together. And that's what we're studying here. Some of which we'll go back and do some of these other things to make our arguments. But we're not going to, for every single doctrinal statement, do all of these. Right? We're relying on the work that's gone before us. And you have to be astute to that so you can check it if you think it goes off. How do we do that? How do we check it? One way to check it is historical theology. Historical theology. What people who've gone before us, who also had the Holy Spirit... God was still at work in the church, even though there was some bad theology in the Middle Ages. There was bad theology in the early church. There was some bad theology floating around that Paul had to deal with and John had to deal with in their letters. But how did people in church history deal with this? Godly people, people that we think were regenerate. How did they look at these passages? How did they deal with the theological concept? Now, it's very important here that we don't put historical theology in the pyramid. Some will do that. I don't think they really mean it like we interpret it when we look at the pyramid. Because if you put theology, historical theology in there, what are we saying? That our belief system is built not just on Scripture, but what men have said in the past about a passage. It's all to the side because it checks us and, and it comes into the discussion when we're talking about systematic theology. But if we say, well, we believe X because of Thomas Aquinas. Well, we believe this doctrine because that's the way B.B. Warfield said it. What did we just do? We said those guys were the standard by which we determine doctrine. Now, they may have said it in a really good way, and they may have done the biblical theology and the biblical exegesis, and we have to look at that and see, to some extent, whether they've done that. And then we can say, man, I really like the way 
John Murray or B.B. Warfield or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul said it. Then we can quote them because they line up with what the passage is actually saying. But we never just rest on what somebody has said or bring that in to make it equal to Scripture. A confession technically is historical, but it's kind of like a systematic theology put in time. So even then, we can't just, you know, if you're a believer today and I say, you know, here's the Westminster, here's the 1689, you're just going to be like, what is that, right? And how does that, that's people from the past taking Scripture and organizing it into doctrines. So yeah, I love historical theology. I've often thought, maybe I should get a doctorate in historical theology. I just love to read it. I love to study it. I love to see what others have thought about theology in the past. Because today, it's so confusing, it seems like, out there. Not, not me confused, but just the world is confused. And there was a time, it seems like, in history when people weren't as confused about doctrine. And they cared about it. And they wrote with clarity. You read what the Puritans wrote, or what Calvin wrote, or what Luther wrote. It's much different, even than the best we have today. And so, I love historical theology. We just cannot say that our belief system is founded on that. It's a check. It's an interaction. It's a discussion. And then from that, we get practical theology. So let's say we're a church. We're not. But let's say we were a church that said, don't worry about your theology. Just get out there and do what the Bible says. That's practical theology. Be practical. Be practical. What just happened? What if we didn't teach doctrine and we said, just go be practical? Yeah, you just get to come up with your own. You still got to fill these in to be practical, right? So you're just going to insert your own thinking or the world's thinking or your previous church's thinking or your previous denomination, or your previous cult. And then you're going to do practical theology the way you think it should be done. You're still trying to fill those in. You have to. You can't do it without it. Exegesis. You have to do that. Now, if you're in a church, God has given us pastors and shepherds and Bible teachers who exegete the word. And they teach the biblical theology. And they teach the systematic theology. So if you're in a really good church, you're learning all that. And you may not think about it. And you may go out and practice it. And not think, well, I've been taught for five years all these other things. You're probably not slowing down to think like that. But it builds as you go in a good church. How many people have grown in a good church? And you feel like you can practice the faith, live it out more than you could before you were growing. Because you were taught these things. It's not that you sit down and say, okay, I've got to spend two years studying evangelism before I can do it. No, once you've gotten some decent theology on what the gospel is, and you have that desire, then go and do it. We're all commanded to evangelize. But you can't just, hey, I'm a Christian five minutes ago. You can tell them a little bit about what you know, but be careful, right? You got to be careful that you're not just taking them off into some other gospel. That's why discipleship is so important. There's a couple of other types of theology here. They're not based on scripture. I want to make that clear. That doesn't mean you can never study them. It doesn't mean that they're somehow evil. It just means they're not based on Scripture, and you need to know that, because if you think they're based on Scripture, you're going to come up with some bad conclusions, and people do this. Natural theology. It is just like it sounds. It's the study of God from nature. Specifically, what can be known about God by human reason alone through the empirical study of the natural world. Today, we break this down into two subgroups. Philosophical theology, that's reason alone. How does philosophy teach us about God? And science, which used to be called natural philosophy. Now that they've done all these experiments, they just call it science because they say that it's no longer philosophy. I think a lot of it still is philosophy. Evolutionary theory is a philosophy. It's a natural philosophy. It's what certain men, the world, 
thinks about creation and how it came about. And they would say it's evolved, not created. So these are not based on Scripture. What are they based on? Man's reason. Man's reason. Man looks at nature and says, I think this. I think God is kind because he makes the grass grow. Well, that's true. But if that's in the Bible, we can affirm it because it's in Scripture. We can't say, I see the Trinity because I see three bushes right there. That's special revelation, not not general revelation. So we have to be careful because our sin nature corrupts what we see. And that's how people come up with things like evolution. And, you know, it's coming back around. This has always been a problem in the church. That people are taking philosophy and trying to insert it back into this. Down somewhere below. Well, the Bible says this, but actually Plato, who was a pagan, said all these things. Wonderful. We can say that if we're just saying, look, this is so obvious. Even the pagan knows this, right? But if we try to justify our salvation theology from Plato, or, or like the, the Roman Catholic Church sometimes does from Aristotle, we're really getting off track, aren't we? Into heretical territory. We've got to found it on sola scriptura. What is that? Latin for scripture alone. All right, here's the 10 topics that are often studied in systematic theology. When I look at a systematic theology book, if I'm going to buy it, I want to know, are these 10 topics covered? Sometimes they're, they're not listed in the table of contents. Like in Beaky and Smalley, I think they only have eight. But the other ones are found in some of the previous topics. So these are topics or what's called in Latin, loci or loci, locations, topics. The big ones, bibliology. Okay, it's ready. It's quiz time. Y'all ready? What's bibliology? The doctrine of, and y'all are doing pretty good. Okay, theology proper, the doctrine of God. Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Pneumatology, pneuma means spirit in Greek. So pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. People get really off on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit these days. And all of these. Angelology, the doctrine of angels. Every single one of these is misunderstood. There's false teaching out there on it. Every single one of these. These are the big ones in Scripture. Anthropology. Anthropos means man. Anthropos, man. The doctrine of man. Who is man? What's our responsibility to God the Creator? And so on. Homardiology. Sin. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. So we'll just, often I'll just say the doctrine of sin, but sometimes you'll hear these other ologies. Homardiology, the doctrine of sin. Soteriology, huge, huge, huge category, the doctrine of salvation. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Not just cosmic last things, but also personal. If a person dies today, what happens to them? What's the last thing for them? Heaven or hell? So it's teaching on heaven and hell now. And then also the end of the age and also all the things that come about when Christ returns and into the new heavens, new earth. So what are we covering in this semester's class? We're covering one and two. Those are big topics on their own. And really a lot lot of books will say an introduction to systematic theology. And you think, man, that's a thousand pages. How is that an introduction? This book says a systematic summary of biblical truth. That's a summary. Yeah, it is, because you're trying to fit all 10 of these into 1,000 pages. That's roughly, on average, 100 pages each. They don't average out like that, but roughly, if you were to average it. And there's a lot, and there's a lot to interact with bad theology if you're going to do that. And 
well, these people say this, and the Armenians say that, and the Mormons say this, and you could see how this could grow to multiple volumes, or often specific books just on one of these topics. Let's look at some other sources of doctrine. Where else do people get their doctrine from? If it's not from Scripture or natural theology, which is not not Scripture, human reason, human reason. Well, it makes sense to me based on what this guy said over here in the past and this historian and this philosopher. That's really another way of saying philosophy. Human philosophy. Reason. We've covered that. Human tradition. It's the way it's always been done. You know, that's, that's the way my church did it. That's the way Augustine did it. Yeah, it would be culture if you're talking especially about family history or local church precedent. A church plant has its own problems, but one of the things is uh, I like about a church plant, you get to create your precedent. There's nothing that came before it. That can be bad or good, depending on how the theology is and so on, the leaders. But if you ever go into a church that's been around a while, and you might hear, that's the way we've always done it here. What are you talking about? This election stuff. That's not what we've taught here before. Church history is just historical theology, basically, when you just rely on that instead of searching the scriptures. Local church precedent. Favorite celebrity preachers. Well, that's the way Vody Bauckham teaches it. Wonderful. Vody Bauckham's a great teacher. Do we just take what he says and that's our theology? Or do we look at the Bible ourselves? And then he checks out, amen, he can help me. But how many people just go to their favorite celebrity preachers and whatever they say, that is their theology. In fact, this is really bad with people who don't go to church but get all their teaching online. They can't really put it all together because they're just focused over here and then they go over here and then they go over here. And they go to all these things, go to all these conferences, look at all these sermons online. But it's not always put together well. They haven't been in a local church learning with the people. Theology should be done in the church and on your own. That's fine. Praise the Lord. But it's always been done in a local church. Only recently do we have books and the internet and all these things that we can study. Yeah, their own pastor becomes a celebrity, right? And that kind of goes back to local church precedent. We got this new guy in here, and he doesn't teach the same as the last guy. He, he's different. Was he biblical? That's what we ask. And then family history. That's not what my mama and daddy believe. That's not the denomination they were part of. They believe differently. I was baptized as a baby, and if I go against that, that's going against my family's beliefs. They won't come to my baptism. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And on and on. So those are some of the sources that people get their doctrine from. Because if you don't get it from the Bible, you're going to get it from somewhere. Everybody has these beliefs. They get it from somewhere. Better to get it from Scripture, because that's the only inspired, infallible source. But if you don't get it from there, you're going to get it from somewhere else. Personal experience. Well, that's my experience. Why do you believe that? That's my experience. Can you point to a verse? Nope. That's just what I believe. I have these concerns, and that's based on the experience. Where's the Bible verse? I don't want to talk about Bible verses, right? Quit throwing the Bible at me, Frank. I'm just telling you my experience. Are you saying my experience isn't true? What do we have to do? Check our experience with Scripture. Well, the Bible says that you were born a sinner and that you started to sin from a very young age. No, I didn't start sinning until I was 18. That's my experience. That's when I remember starting to sin. Well, that might be when you remember, but the Bible says, here's Charles Hodge on experience, those who ignore or reject the divine guidance of the Scriptures and assume to be led by an inward divine influence this kind of goes into the next one we're going to look at. Into the knowledge and obedience of the truth are properly called enthusiasts, mystics, those who claim to be under the immediate guidance of God or His Spirit, in short, mysticism. 
bypasses the scriptures, makes the intellect virtually passive. So that both is experience and intuition, which is the next one on the bullet points. This covers both of those. True theology is not based on your experience or your intuition. That's my intuition. That's just what I feel. I feel God is a loving God. You ever heard this? I feel God is a loving God. He would never send anybody to hell. That's intuition. It's not based on anything outside of them. They're just, they've either heard it from somebody else or they're just, that's what I feel. A lot of bad theology starts right here. A lot of bad theology. Personal intuition. That's what I feel. That's what I think. Are you saying I'm wrong? You can't say anybody's wrong today. You can't tell me I'm wrong. The Bible can, and the Bible does. Personal revelation. God spoke to me. He said, that's not true. Well, God spoke right here. I don't know this is true. And it says something different. Well, God spoke to me. God told me. God said something to me. Personal revelation. So these are the common sources. And I put sources because they're not true sources, right? They're not true sources. They're something from you or mankind in general that's outside of Scripture. Let's talk about why study systematic theology. Let's run through these objections real quick. Why in the world should I care about theology? That, that's an objection, right? I don't need that stuff to live. We're just supposed to go take the gospel. Okay, what's the gospel? Theological question. We're just supposed to share Jesus. Okay, who is Jesus? Now, unless you cite a Bible verse, anything else out of your mouth is going to be a theological statement. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the son of God, fully man, fully God. Theology. You need theology. All I need is the Bible. Yeah, but a lot of people have the Bible, don't they? And they do bad things with it. So how do we rightly interpret the Bible, put that together, organize that into theological concepts that Paul did, that Jesus did? Of course, Jesus didn't have to do all of that that we did. He did in his humanity, but of course, being God, he knew all things. I can follow Jesus without having to learn all these big words. You can. You're going to be a child tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. Yep, you don't have to know the, the depths of justification, but you would be able to worship God better if you did. If you understood what he's talking about in Romans 3 and Romans 8, you're going to be able to worship God, serve him, evangelize, love your spouse, raise your children, all those things better the more you know about our awesome God. Here's the Church of Christ or Disciples of Christ motto. This came out of the Restoration Movement. No creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And so what they were saying is, we're going to do away with everything that the people in history of the church has learned. We're just going to do away with it and start over. We're going to restore the true church. It's also what the Mormons said, also what the Jehovah's Witnesses said, and every cult since then and before then. No creed but Christ. I mean, no doctrine but Christ. Okay, who is Christ? That's a theological question. No book but the Bible. And the same denominations who said this are the ones that are some of the most liberal ones today. No book with the Bible. I mean, no theology text. Don't read anything else. Don't look at any church history. And that just leads people off into the bushes because they are just interpreting the Bible however they think without sound, proper principles. How many people have you saved today? This is a common Southern Baptist thing. I love my Southern Baptists. My brothers are Southern Baptists. But sometimes you get into these discussions and they're like, hey, I, I don't want to hear how much you've learned. How many people have you saved today? Because I've witnessed to five people while you've been sitting there reading that theology book. Okay, I'm not going to go into the altar calls and all that, but it's sort of like, who was it? I think it was Whitfield. Was it Whitfield or another guy? Warfield, maybe? One of the fields. He said, should I pray or should I, should I read this theology book? And he, was it? No, 
I think it was Whitfield. Anyway, one of the fields. And he said, how about reading your theology book through prayer? How about doing both? It's not either or, right? It's not evangelize or read a theology book. Read a theology book. I can learn about God and I can go tell people about him and be more clear on who he is. Here's a common one, doctrine divides. In fact, one of the Episcopalian reverends in America, they were dividing, the, the whole denomination was dividing over gay marriage. And he said, heresy is better than schism. He said, it's better to be wrong about your doctrine than it is to divide the church over these matters like gay marriage and so on. Doctrine divides. True, it does, right? It divides truth from error. Justin Peters, most people have come to the point where they say, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just love Jesus. That's a foolish statement, he says. If we love Jesus as much as we profess to love him, then don't you think we would want to get to know him? And the only way to get to know him is by knowing him in his word. We're to study the word of God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, our love for God is deepened. Doesn't Jesus say, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Everything, including your mind? Okay, why study theology? I'm going to get, see how many of these nine I can get through. There's nine. I, I put eight, but I came up with one more late last night. So there's nine. Why study theology? To know God better. I think we've covered that, right? John 17, 3, Jeremiah 9, 24. We looked at those. But Ephesians 1, 16 is, is a prayer from Paul. Just look at this. I do not cease giving thanks for you. So he's praying to God. While making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you. So he's praying that God would give them something. The spirit of wisdom. And that's debated whether that's the Holy Spirit or just the idea of wisdom. But we won't stop there. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him. You need wisdom to think rightly about Christ and how he applies to all of life. And the revelation, which is in the scriptures, that you would get a knowledge a full knowledge of Christ, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And this long list. So theology drives your worship and your practice. And if you don't have good theology, then your worship and your practice and your daily living and your church and everything's going to be off. Oh, he goes on. What's the surpassing greatness of his power? These are all the things he's praying that they would learn from their study of Christ in the scriptures. His power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Tons of theology right there. You take every one of those words and study them in scripture. Those are theology concepts. It's part of the Great Commission. You're commanded to do it as a church. You don't have to start from the bottom and put all the books together, but you need to study theology. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. That's where most people stop with the Great Commission right there. Let's continue. Step two, what happens when you make a disciple? Baptize them. And the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. One name, three names. What is it? One name, three persons. What does that mean? That's the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a theological statement right there. But number three is what I'm pointing out. Teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Teaching them. Doctrine. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. How about this one? This is my last one today. We're already all theologians. You already have a theology. The only question is, is it the right theology or not? This is R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone's a Theologian. You should grab one of these if you don't have them. He deals with just real basically the, the 10 topics of theology. How do you answer the question, who is Jesus? What is marriage? You have a theology already. Everyone does. The unbeliever has a theology. It's just not a right theology. It's not a godly theology. So since you will have to have a theology, you should make sure it's biblical. 
If you're going to have one, it might as well be biblical as a Christian, right? Don't you want a biblical, systematically correct theology? Okay, we'll pick up next week talking about heresy and errant theology. And then we'll go on to the other topics listed on the schedule. Lord, we pray to you that you would enlighten our minds to study Scripture, that we would be better theologians, that we would have our theology lined up with Scripture, not the world's theology, not our own intuition or experience or whatever pops into our head, but what you've revealed to us. Help us to grow, to learn, to apply this in all that we do. We do it for your glory. Amen.